Well, I understand uh, some of your spirits could use some lifting up after yesterday's game. You take light in the fact that, hey, at least your team scored some points, so that's not something all of us can say, right, Dan? Uh, so take light in that. Uh, but the good news is, in light of the fact that some of us may need to lift up our spirits today, is that we have entered the perfect season for that, as we have entered the Christmas season officially. Last week, you were a dangerous family like ours if you already had your Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving. But now, if you don't have your Christmas tree up, you're simply just behind the times. Uh, as Thanksgiving is officially over, and now the next major holiday on our calendar is Christmas. And this year, as we celebrate Christmas, as we want to each year, we want to make sure that Jesus is the focal point of this Christmas season. It can be so easy and so natural with everything that our society offers around this Christmas season. It's so easy to make Jesus not the focal point of this Christmas season. But we as a church, we as a family of body believers, we want to ensure that we are making Jesus the focal point of this Christmas season. And to help us do that, we are starting a new series entitled, Tis the Jesus Season. And throughout this series, we're going to go over a rundown of the basics of who Jesus is. It's crucial that we have a basic understanding of both who God is and Jesus is. Near the end of Jesus' life, near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus prayed to God and said in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus, uh, he, this was his prayer in John 17. You can read that in the first three verses of John 17. And so Jesus says, as he's praying to God, that it is eternal life to one, know who God is, and two, to know who Jesus is. And it's not just about knowing about God and Jesus. I appreciate uh, the RV commentary on John 17. They state, quote, people need to do more than know about God. They need to know him in a way that indicates they understand, believe, and obey him. We need to know him on a level that we can understand, believe, and obey him. So throughout this series, we're, we're going to go uh, about and helping you know Jesus in a way that you can understand and that you can believe in him. And then throughout this series, once, once you understand and believe in Jesus, then you can make that choice to obey him as your master, as your king. And throughout this series, that this Christmas series, uh, Tis the Jesus Season, it is going to be more of an information-based series. Uh, when uh, preparing for messages, you can have more messages that are more practical application and some messages that are more information-based. And throughout this series, we're going to be focusing more on simply delivering information to you all. And to help us uh, deliver information that we can communicate on a clear basis, uh, we print out half sheets. If Evelyn and Ellie, you guys would hand out uh, those half sheets here. 
throughout this series, we'll just uh, give you guys a half sheet of paper uh, that going through the basic outline of what we will be talking about. Some of these uh, messages, especially, will be more information driven, and so hopefully that can keep you guys um, on schedule with what we are talking about. And so we're splitting this series up into five weeks. The fifth weeks will be Christmas Eve, uh, and, and we'll talk about Born of a Virgin. But before then, today we're, we're going to introduce the topic, and we're going to talk about how Jesus is the Christ. Next week, we'll talk about how Jesus is the Son of God. Following week, we'll talk about how Jesus is the agent of God. And then we'll talk about how Jesus is the King and Savior of the world in our fourth week. And then Christmas Eve, we'll talk about uh, the virgin birth of Jesus. As it's not normal to be born of a virgin, but that was one of the many characteristics that made Jesus unique. And so these characteristics that we are going to be talking about throughout our series, they're included in our church's statement of belief. If you go on our website, northhillschurch.org, um, online, and you click on our about page and our beliefs, uh, you can read about what our church teaches and believes about uh, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, uh, the nature of man, the kingdom of God, and the Bible. Uh, those six topics there, you can see what we uh, believe and what we teach as a church. Well, quoting our statement of beliefs posted there on our website, this is uh, what it reads about uh, Jesus, and this is included in your notes as well. We believe that Jesus is the begotten Son of God, who was born of God's Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Jesus is subordinate to God, his Father. Jesus is the promised Savior, the Messiah Christ, who was sinless and died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. He was mortal and remained in the grave for three days until God raised him. Jesus is currently seating, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And one day he is going to return to earth to establish God's kingdom. And so that's what uh, we believe and what we teach as a church regarding Jesus. And throughout this series, we're essentially going to be diving deeper into uh, this statement of belief, uh, taking a deeper dive of who Jesus is, because Jesus is truly one of a kind. There, there is not another being uh, like Jesus. And so... Uh, Again, it's going to be more uh, of information uh, basis. And as we're going through a more of an information-driven message, we're going to attempt to walk a very fine line of not preaching above anyone's head throughout this series while also still providing valuable insight to our Bible scholars in here as well. It's a little more difficult to do in an information-based uh, series, uh, but we're going to attempt to do that, to, to walk that fine line of not preaching above anyone's head and also uh, providing valuable insight to our Bible scholars here this morning and throughout the series. And so what does Christ mean? That's what we're, uh, that's our topic for this morning, Jesus the Christ. Many of you guys, all of us are familiar with the fact that, that Jesus is known as Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, uh, the whole shebang there. And so, so what does Christ mean? No, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is a title given to Jesus. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and it's uh, the same word, it's equivalent to uh, the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach, which means Messiah. 
And so whenever you hear Christ, or, or sometimes you'll hear uh, people call Jesus the Messiah, or you call, hear people call Jesus the Christ, they mean the same thing. Jesus the Christ and Jesus the Messiah. One has a Hebrew roots, one has a Greek roots. But uh, they both mean anointed or anointed one. And anointed is essentially a fancy word for chosen. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests, the prophets, and the kings, they were anointed for specific tasks. They often went through a formal anointing procedure. We, we go back and we read through the Old Testament. We can read about the long process of Aaron and his sons being anointed uh, as priests. We can read about King Saul and King David being anointed for their specific task of being the king of Israel. And there's many more throughout the Old Testament where we can go back and read this process of someone being anointed for a task. They're, they're, they're being chosen to fulfill a certain role. And so when we call Jesus the Christ, we are simply referring to him as the anointed or the chosen one of God. Jesus, or excuse me, God chose Jesus for a very specific role and a very specific task. God chose Jesus to be his son. God chose Jesus to be his agent or his uh, representation God chose Jesus to be his king, uh, the, the king of the world, not, not God's king, the king of the world. And God chose Jesus to be the savior of the world as well. These are all different tasks that God has selected specifically Jesus of Nazareth to fulfill. And we can trace God's plan for the Christ all the way back to the beginning of creation. As Jesus is very much at the center of God's plan for mankind. And he's been at the center of God's plan for mankind for a very long time. And we can trace it all the way back to the beginning of creation. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. If you read the first couple of books, uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis, you'll see that God made the heavens and the earth. And the first people, according uh, to the count of Genesis, the first people that God made were Adam and Eve. And for Adam and Eve, life was perfect for them. They didn't have to deal with the same struggles that you and I deal with on a daily basis. Life was perfect. They lived in the Garden of Eden, which is known, uh, referred to as delight. They lived in a Garden of Delight, and they had perfect fellowship with God. And now Adam and Eve, the, the first two uh, humans that God created, they had one rule. They could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now in this picture, in this garden of Eden, this garden of delight, where life was perfect for Adam and Eve, there was also a serpent present. Who We learn later uh, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that that serpent was the devil. And the devil tempted Eve to eat of the tree. And so Eve gave some to her husband, Adam, as well. And so they both ate from the tree and they both sinned. And so there we have it. Sin entered the picture. And that is where everything went downhill. Because of this sin, this disobedience from what God very clearly instructed Adam and Eve not to do, 
there are consequences. As we all know, there are consequences to our actions. And there are very much consequences to the actions of Adam and Eve. God uh, sent a curse to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent. To Adam... God said that he was going to have to work hard for his food. He's going to curse the ground. There's going to be thorns uh, in the ground. So uh, when you come, uh, come spring season or summer season, some of you guys are already looking forward to that. Uh, come when, when weather gets warmer and all of a sudden you see these weeds popping up in your garden and uh, your lawn. And some of those weeds have thorns and you go and you try and pluck that weed, dig that weed out of the ground and ouch! That hurts when that thorn pricks you right there in the finger. Well, if you run into that, you can thank Adam for that. Because Adam uh, sinned, partook of the fruit of the tree. God cursed uh, the ground. He cursed uh, man and saying that, hey, you're going to have to work hard for your food now. For you ladies, I'm not experienced this personally, but I hear uh, with childbearing, there is a pretty severe amount of pain. How many ladies can attest to severe pain in uh, childbearing? Yes, uh, you, can thank, uh, you can thank Eve for that. Uh, when she partook of the fruit of the knowledge of tree, the knowledge of good and evil, God cursed Eve and said that you will experience uh, pain as you bear children. And so we still are dealing with those consequences today. And then God also cursed the serpent, the one who deceived, the one who tempted Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it's the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel and so here, uh, this curse of the serpent, that the serpent would have to go on the dust of the ground. Something that maybe the serpent beforehand uh, didn't have to crawl on the ground. I don't know. You can speculate that on your own. But we see here in verse 15, he says that he's going to put enmity between him and the woman, the serpent and the woman, between her offspring and his offspring. And he... It's going to bruise your head. I, 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 I enjoy the ESV, but I don't enjoy uh, this bruise. I, I enjoy when some translations read, he will, yeah, there we go. He will crush your head. He is going to crush your head and he, you shall only bruise his heel. Now, who is the he? Who is the he that, get ready, is going to crush the head of the serpent? But we see that the he is the special chosen one of God. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, right when sin was introduced into the world, God told uh, Adam and Eve here that this curse of the serpent, that, hey, there's coming someone. And when he comes, he's going to crush your head. So watch out. It's going to crush or, or bruise your head. And so all the way back near the beginning of creation, God chose a special person to defeat the evil one. This verse here, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, known as the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel, the first message of good news. The first message of good news that God had a plan in place 
to destroy the works of evil. It's the first assurance from God to mankind that he had a special person in mind to deliver them from the evil one. And I love the timing because this is right after sin was introduced into the world. And so for all time, mankind had someone that they could put their hope in who would destroy the works of the evil one. As this is the first promise, the first foreshadow, the first prophecy of the coming Christ or the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, all the way back to the very beginning, right after the creation of the world, right after sin was introduced into the picture. That's how far back we can trace God's plan to uh, God's plan for a Messiah, God's plan for uh, a chosen one to save the world. And the cool thing is, it goes even before the beginning. God's plan for Christ, we can trace back to before the beginning of creation. We see this in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. We read near the end of the Bible, it reads, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, he, that, that's the Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, through Christ, are believers in God, who raised him, Christ, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so Christ, he, he was offered as a sacrifice in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the people of Israel. They had a number of different types of sacrifices, some of which uh, involved the sin that they've committed uh, before God. And some of these offerings uh, revolved providing a sacrifice due to the sin that they had committed. On top of that, one of, if not the most important celebrations for the Jews uh, is the Passover, the celebration which God spared the Israelites during the Exodus when they were fleeing the, the nation of Egypt as they were beginning to be treated harshly as slaves. And so he spared the families, God spared the families uh, that had the blood of the lamb on their door. For every family who didn't have the blood of a lamb on their door, he's going to kill their firstborn. This was to um, get Pharaoh to decide that, hey, you need to let these people go. And it's also, I think, to show that God had power over the gods of the Egyptians as well. And so that's all in the old times. And now we see that Christ, he serves as that Passover lamb for us. God will spare us of his wrath if we accept the sacrifice of the Passover lamb who has no blemish. He has no sin. He has no fault in his life. He is the perfect once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And then we see verse 20, that Jesus was foreknown by God. When? Before the foundation of the world. Before God even formed the world, he already knew Christ. He already had a plan that revolved around Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. I think God knew that mankind, his future creation, would sin and separate themselves from God. And so I think God knew that he needed someone to repair that broken relationship between God and mankind, the masterpiece of his creation. 
And that's where Jesus, the Christ, comes into play. Jesus is God's chosen one who would repair our relationship with God. And so Jesus was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world, but God's plan for Jesus wasn't brought about until just a bit before 1 Peter was written. That's why he says uh, in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, or he was revealed in these last times. And so just shortly before uh, Peter wrote this letter, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus had his ministry here on earth. Uh, he was crucified and he was resurrected. All of that, that happened just shortly before the writing of 1 Peter. And so even though God had this plan for Jesus, the Christ, the chosen one, before he even formed the world, we see that just a bit before in these last times, God revealed it. He made manifest in these last times for the sake uh, uh, of us all, for the, for the sake of those who believe in God, who through him, through Christ, were made believers in God, who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so through Jesus, we are believers in God. And this plan was put forth, uh, this plan was established before God formed the world. And so God's plan for mankind through his Christ is the focal point of the New Testament. I've often heard it said, and uh, there's a lot of truth in this, if you want to know more about the character and the nature of God, read through the Old Testament. If you want to learn more about the nature and the character of Jesus, read uh, the New Testament. As you'll, you'll learn some about Jesus in the Old Testament, you'll learn some about God in the New Testament, but it seems God's focal point of Old Testament, and then we see God's plan for mankind through Christ Jesus, it's written all throughout the New Testament. But again, it's not just the New Testament that reveals information about the Christ. We already saw that in Genesis 3.15, that the first foreshadow, the first prophecy of the Christ, that he would destroy the evil one. And these foreshadows, what some people call prophecies, they are uh, scattered all throughout the Old Testament. There are hundreds of prophecies, hundreds of foreshadows, uh, foreshadowings of Jesus scattered throughout the Old Testament. It depends on how you count them up, but I most frequently saw uh, that there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. That's a, a loose average there, uh, would be just shy of 10 times per book of the Old Testament that we can see a prophecy written about Jesus. The Jesus Film Organization published an article that contains 55 different prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And I want to read a snippet uh, from this article highlighting just how spe special Jesus is by fulfilling these prophecies. Those of you who enjoy statistics will appreciate this. And for those of you who don't enjoy statistics, hopefully you will still appreciate this. Uh, so, quote, Peter Stoner, chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, was passionate about biblical prophecies. With 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight, we're just looking at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. They came up with extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled, and then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of these prophecies. The conclusion to his research was staggering. 
The prospect that anyone would satisfy those eight prophecies was just one in 10 to the 17th power. And science speaks, I mean, some of us, one in 10 to the 17th power, you know, that, that's a really small uh, number. But uh, if you're anything like me, you can't really comprehend how small of a number one in 10 to the 17th power. And so in science speaks, he describes it like this. Let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state of Texas Two feet deep. (laughs) That's incredible. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. From their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. And that's just considering eight prophecies. When most people can count up over 300 Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. One in 10 to the seventh power with eight prophecies. And I would also add that when looking at some of the prophecies of the Old Testament of Jesus, they'd be impossible for anyone else to fulfill. And so for thousands of years, these Jews were looking and waiting for this very specific and special anointed one, the chosen one of God. And after thousands of years of waiting for this chosen one of God, about 2,000 years ago in our time, Jesus was born and he fulfilled some of what God had tasked him to do. Jesus was crucified. He served as the Passover lamb. He was resurrected. Uh, and then he ascended to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. And Jesus currently seated at the right hand of God, mediating for you and I, serving as our high priest. And But one day, Jesus is going to come back to this earth and Jesus is going to finish up fulfilling the various prophecies written about him. And one such prophecy that that Jesus will fulfill is found in Psalm 2. If you have your Bibles, you can can, uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. The ESV assigns uh, this title, Psalm 2, as the reign of the Lord's anointed. And so Psalm 2 reads, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what we see here, this picture, this image provided in Psalm 2, is that the people and kings of the earth, they're going to plot against God, and they're going to plot against his anointed one, his chosen one. 
Now, I think that there's a double layer of meaning in uh, this psalm. Psalm 2 was actually recited or sung at the coronation of Judah's king. So if we remember the history of uh, the Old Testament, we see that uh, the Israelites, they left Egypt, then they established a nation uh, in Israel, then that kingdom was divided. The 10 northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah when a new king was established in Judah, they would recite or sing this specific song, indicating that, hey, uh, this king, uh, he, he is the anointed one. He, he is the chosen one of God. We'll see later on that the anointed one uh, in this psalm is referred to as the son. And God does refer to uh, some of the kings as some we see in, specifically in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant where God calls uh, David's son Solomon. Many people think that a part of that is about Solomon, a, a son in a very similar fashion that I think you and I are children of God. So the different kings of Judah, those who follow the Davidic line, they could be seen as fulfilling parts of this psalm. But I believe uh, Psalm 2 also refers to God's ultimate anointed one, Christ. Jesus. And I'm not the only one who, who believes this either. There's a lot smart people, more reliable people. Uh, the writer of Acts, uh, Luke, and the writer of Hebrews both identify that Jesus was the primary subject of this psalm. And so we continue uh, as the, these people, these kings of the earth, they, they set against God and his anointed one. And we see in verse four, he who sits in the heavens, referring to God, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so the one who sits in heaven, referring to God, he laughs. And we have to be clear, he doesn't laugh at people's rejection of him. You know, I think what, what a really powerful thing about you and I is I think we have an effect on the emotions of God. We, we see throughout the scriptures that God rejoices over the sinner who repents of his sins. And likewise, God mourns for when we commit our life to a life of sin. Second Peter 3, 9 states that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants the people to come to repentance. And so God doesn't laugh at their rejection in a lighthearted manner. God laughs at their efforts to defeat him. It's probably, a, I'll give you guys a picture, uh, probably a similar feeling to what uh, God is experiencing here is what you Buckeye fans felt a couple weeks ago against Michigan State. You laugh at their effort of defeating you. They got no chance. And so the, these opponents of God, God's laughing at them thinking, there's no chance. There's no chance. I have infinite power. And me, God, I'm going to set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In verse 7, I will tell of the creed. The Lord Yahweh God said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so God's anointed one, the, the chosen one of God, he's not going to be any ordinary king. One, this king, this anointed one of God, he is going to be the son of God. And two, we see that this anointed one, this chosen one of God, he's going to rule over the ends of the earth. 
You know, there's a lot of uh, fascination. Uh, recently, there was a trend uh, where uh, the wives would ask their husbands or significant others, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And there's lots of fascination over the Roman Empire uh, for whatever reason. And there's lots of fascination over the Mongol Empire, British empires, amongst others, as they were able to rule over a large piece of land in impressive fashion. But the British Empire was the largest uh, of all the empires in the history of mankind. And they controlled nearly, not quite, but nearly a quarter of the, of the world's land. And so the largest empire in the history of mankind controlled not even a quarter of the world's land. But here we see in Psalm 2, God's anointed one, his chosen one, he's going to be God's son, and he's going to be the king of the ends of the earth. A hundred percent of the world, of the world's land, Christ is going to be king. These other empires don't even begin to compare to the type of power and authority and dominion that Christ is going to have established here on earth. And finally, uh, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're encouraged to be wise. We got to be wise. We have to serve the Lord and serve his anointed. For God's anointed is coming and his rule, his kingship is going to extend to the ends of the earth. And so you are going to be blessed if you take refuge in God and his chosen one. God's Christ, God's Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth. As Jesus is a special, special man. He is the man whom God is at the center of his plan for the world before he even formed the world. And so we've seen today that God has designated Jesus to be his son. He chose Jesus to, to specifically fulfill this role of being the son of God. We see uh, throughout scriptures that God has specifically chosen Jesus to resemble his father, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. And so much so that we'll see that Jesus serves as a great image, a great representation or agent of God. We see that God has designated, he's chosen Jesus to be the king of the world. Not just 25% of the world, like the greatest empire in the history of mankind, but 100% of the world, the ends of the earth. God has specifically chosen Jesus to fulfill this role. God has designated, God has specifically chosen Jesus to be the savior of the world. As God chose Jesus to serve as the Passover lamb for all of us. And all we have to do is put our faith in him, put our faith in that sacrifice and we will be spared just like the Israelites were spared in the Exodus. This is all made possible due to the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus. As Jesus, unlike anyone else, he was conceived by God's 
Holy Spirit. And so throughout the next four weeks, we're going to further break down how God designated Jesus for each of these different roles. In church, we have a reason to celebrate. We have reason to celebrate this Christmas season because we serve a special Christ. He is a special chosen one of God who no one else compares to. And so this Christmas season, tis the Jesus season. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this time of year that we are able to put special emphasis on the birth of your son. Father, I pray that you help us all to understand and believe you and your son. Father, I pray that you inspire us through that understanding, through that belief to obey your every command as well, obey every command of your son, Christ Jesus. God, we long for that day when Christ will rule over the ends of the earth. God, I, God, I pray that everyone here gathered this morning, that we all put our faith in you. We put our faith in your son, Christ Jesus. Father, we love you. We love your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.